0: If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Zach. I serve as the worship director here at Center Church. And if you've recently gone through the new members class, you'll see I am listed on the literature as pastor in training, in training. As in, that guy needs some extra training. Double check that guy's work. As funny as the typo, well, I'm assuming it's a typo. Maybe it wasn't a typo. But it did bring to mind... The Bereans in Acts 17, where Paul and Silas preached the gospel at synagogue, and it says that the people people there received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Their eagerness to receive God's word preached, and their diligence to later examine the scriptures, is why they were called more noble than others. And so my encouragement to you, Center Church, is to be like the believers in Berea and check my work. Read for yourself in all eagerness and see if what I preach today is so. So if you would, please open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 119, starting in verse 49. This is the Word of God. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of Of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Let's pray. God, as we unpack and then apply your holy and life giving word. We ask that your Spirit would work as only He can by illuminating the Scriptures in our minds and in our hearts. May each person today who hears your Word leave today more aware of your Holy Spirit's empowerment to be doers of the Word. Help us to understand, God, help me to be a clear and faithful preacher of your word lead us father in becoming a church that continues to grow in delighting in your word amen words and their meanings can occasionally change over time one such word and the story of how its definition got switched to mean the opposite caught my attention this week. I'll read it for you now. In the early 1940s, there was a gentleman who found himself becoming a rising star in Hollywood. His meteoric rise, however, came in an unorthodox way after he decided to try his hand at the sport of hunting. Ever the consummate showman, this man would don a funny-looking hat and trousers, and theatrically track and hunt various game, proving that the 1940s were another time altogether, people would gather and watch. People of all ages, children included, would come and find a soft place to sit, and they would spectate as the actor would involve the crowd as he tiptoed through the forests. The man would shush the little kids as he took aim at birds and squirrels and deer. And the kids would jump at the loud report of the rifle, but ultimately were unworried because they were in on the joke. Our hunter was a terrible shot and everyone knew it. He never one time hit what he was aiming at. Well, this all changed one early July morning, When our would-be hunter took careful aim at an unsuspecting rabbit, winked at the kids and pulled the trigger. To the dismay and horror of all who watched, the rabbit went down in a blurry tangle of fur and twigs and dirt. The little hands of the young crowd leapt to their mouths and eyes in disbelief and sadness. Stunned from the shock of actually hitting his target, the hunter immediately ran to the downed rabbit and began to weep for what he had done, for he had never killed an animal before. To the utter amazement and delight of all who were watching, the rabbit suddenly opened its eyes and uttered a surprisingly witty yet biblically accurate insult What a Nimrod! From that day on, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd would forever be locked in a feud that brought many children joy for years to come. Now, besides cementing the rivalry between these two Looney Tunes, the moment also brought with it the definitional change of the word Nimrod. Up until that point, Nimrod was used how we use the word Herculean. If you completed a Herculean task, you were like Hercules. You're strong, you're mighty, hardworking. Likewise, if you were a Nimrod, you were excellent at the craft of hunting. You were like Nimrod from the Bible, a hunter known for his skill. And so Bugs Bunny calling Mr. Fudd a Nimrod was pretty funny because Elmer Fudd was clearly no Nimrod the unintended consequences of what was surely a throwaway joke was that a definition was forever changed. If you happen to be called a Nimrod today, there's no question, it's not a compliment. And while the etymology of Nimrod is documented well enough functionally, today it's come to mean the exact opposite. See, words and their definitions come into contact with the culture and they can't come out the other side without being changed in some way. And it is for this reason that careful attention must be given to how we read the Word of God. There's a, a couple of words in our text this morning that have had their brush with countless cultures over the years. And their definitions have been watered down. Or their, their tone has been changed and altered. And so this morning, I'd like to bring to our attention three of these words or concepts from the text for us to crack open and to examine with a biblical magnifying glass and then see where our own understanding might need to be adjusted. The psalmist begins with this word, remember. Remember your word, To your servant. And that seems like such an odd way to begin a prayer to your all-knowing and eternal God. At the first glance, to me, it I just read it, it sounds a little disrespectful. Like, yeah, who who are you to tell God to remember something? But when you look deeper, the tone of of this stanza. It's different from, say, David's Psalm 13 where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In in that psalm, David is voicing a very human emotion. He's he's expressing his feelings of isolation and depression. The tone of our text is very different. It It just doesn't have that same timbre. Charles Spurgeon writes, There is a world of meaning in that word remember as it is addressed to god it is used in scripture in the most tender sense so there's there's something deeper here than just a simple reminder a while ago i found an old picture of my wife and i sitting together on a bench long before we started dating now if i were to take that picture and go show it to my wife and i say Remember this? Listen, there is no question that my wife remembers that. She remembers everything that's going on in that picture. What she had for lunch that day. A conversation she had with, with somebody in the background. The, the exact GPS coordinates of that bench. It's funny if for me to say, Hey, remember, re- let me remind you of what's going on in this picture. I'm not reminding her. She knows. When I ask her to remember... It's not because I'm concerned that she's forgotten. It's because it's a sure thing that she's remembered. I'm not reminding my wife that this event took place. I'm saying I want us both to bring it to mind now. And it brings us both delight to remember. When it comes to God's own words, it's right for us typically the forgetful to call out remember to the one who cannot forget the believers cry of remember your promises it lands on the very heart of the one who made them just look how God responds in the scripture in Exodus two twenty-four, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Leviticus 26.42 Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Deuteronomy 4.31 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Psalm 105.8 He remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Ezekiel 16.60 Yet I will remember My covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. It goes on and on. These are not moments of... Surprised divine epiphany. As if God is going about his business and then someone says, Hey God, remember you said that you would never leave or forsake us. And God goes, Oh, that's right. I forgot. Thanks for the reminder. No. No. How could God forget? He has made a new covenant with those who have been purchased by the blood of his only son. You've heard the phrase that blood is thicker than water, meaning that family relationships are stronger, have stronger bonds than any other relationship. The ancient phrase is actually the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. In ancient times, to enter into a covenant It meant to sacrifice an animal and to just rip it apart and then physically walk with someone else through the mutilated remains. In effect, saying, Should I ever forget? Should I ever break this covenant? May I be like this mutilated sacrificial animal? To enter into an ancient covenant was brutal, it was serious, it was bloody, and it was unforgettable. You don't forget something like that. The covenant promise that God entered into with us took place with His only Son, Jesus, as the Lamb of God who was slaughtered. So it's safe to say, God remembers. God remembers that. As, as disturbing as it might be, as a father myself... I can't even bring myself to entertain the thought. I can't imagine a scenario in which I would demonstrate my love for someone, a such a great love for someone, that I would even entertain the thought of taking my only son, ripping him in half, and walking through that carnage with an enemy. I can't, it's too much for my heart to bear the thought of. That's so extreme. And it's so just otherworldly. And yet God does exactly that. So when we join with the psalmist and we say, God, remember your word. First of all, oh, he remembers, alright. And second of all, that memory is a memory of tender Loving kindness. That memory, God's promise to keep His covenant, it's not accusatory. It is not, yeah, I remember what it took to purchase all of you. I remember. No. It's remembering the love that was demonstrated in that moment. Isaiah 54.10 For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. From David to Job all the way forward to the thief on the cross who said remember me. The author of Psalm 119 Joins their voices with this tender cry of remember. Why? Because the word of the Lord has made them to hope. They have all been made to drink from this wellspring of ever flowing, overwhelming, and unadulterated hope the likes of which they have never tasted anywhere else. So it's not, it's not from a fear of God forgetting. It's a plea. It's mixed with amazement that God would even consider entering into a covenant relationship with them. It's almost too good to be true. And so for us today, when sin and its effects rear their ugly heads, and we're tempted to despair, try this. Cry out to God and ask Him to remember His word. His answer's already been recorded in the Bible. He literally cannot forget. And that truth, believed, will give you hope. See, hope, hope is a word that's been watered down over time. When we use the word hope today, it's really a poor approximation of what it once meant. It doesn't have the same stopping power. It's not, it's not robust enough. We use it daily, and honestly, when I use, it just sounds weak. We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope the road construction on Cooper would be over soon. Good luck. I hope the car repair isn't going to be costly. And when we say that, honestly, what are we saying? I wish. I wish it, it wouldn't rain today. I wish that construction would be over. I It'd be great if the car repair wasn't costly. None of those definitions work for Psalm 119. They all fall embarrassingly short of the author's intended meaning. Hope, for the psalmist, it means to wait not a wish it means to wait to be made to wait in confident expectation for something that they know will happen if you think about it this way no one wishes a sunrise into existence Okay, but if you get up and you look to the east at 4 in the morning hoping to see the sun, you'll have to wait. You will be made to wait. Now there's no question on whether or not we're going to have sunlight tomorrow. Right? No rational person spends their day anxious or concerned about tomorrow's sunlight forecast. The accumulated trustworthiness of a daily sunrise has produced in all of us the assurance That tomorrow will not be spent in darkness. But if it is not the right time, you're going to have to hang out for a bit. You have a confident expectation for sunlight, even when it is currently dark. We all operate this way. It's not rational to be upset at four in the morning because it's dark and you wanted sunlight. So we orient our lives accordingly. When it comes to hope or the being made to wait for the light of God's promises in times of dark affliction, it just feels different though. So knowing this, the psalmist rightly puts the attention on the faithfulness and unchanging nature of God in such an assured way that he says, God, you have made me to hope in your word. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. This is going to be a hard truth. I know that the inclination of my heart is to say, yeah, realistically though, my comfort in my affliction would be that God removes my affliction. See, when I encounter affliction of any degree, my prayer is that God removes the trouble. Take it away. Which, it's not wrong. We should go to God and pray for deliverance from trouble from trouble. Where I go wrong is that I mistake deliverance from my trouble as the most important thing I need in my life. My prayers end up sounding like I just want out of this situation. God, would you please just remove the relational strife? Just take it. Would you please make it so that my life is not difficult? I need a break, I need a win. And by doing this, I elevate the value of my comfort over God's design for my holiness. And God takes my holiness much more seriously than I do. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-3 Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the lord jesus for this is the will of god your sanctification see it is god's will that we walk over time more and more in line with what pleases god 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One of the principal ways that we are being transformed into the image of Christ is by believing His Word And drawing near to him. And one of the principal ways that we are drawn near to him is when the waves of affliction crash, we are then made to see that the only safe harbor is Christ. We sing a song here that has these lyrics. It's always difficult for me to sing these lyrics. He sends the waves. He sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. It's a hard truth to grasp that God would allow us to experience such difficulties. Many of you have experienced intense seasons of affliction and trial and difficulty much more than I have. To observe those that have experienced extreme affliction and come into this room and with hands raised sing of God's goodness that's provoking i understand it is a it is a hard truth for our minds to 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 grip that it is the Lord who allows these waves. I don't understand why. I don't understand why it seems like some people experience way more affliction than I do. But the goal, the ultimate goal is the same. Is that those waves would make us to realize that Christ. Christ is our rock. This truth, it's filled up with a hope. Because waves of affliction that come our way, they're measured. They are intentional. They are with a purpose. Because our holiness ranks higher than our comfort in God's eyes. It was this illustration of a man who was given a parachute as he got on his commercial flight. And after putting it on, he found that it was very uncomfortable to sit. The funny looks from other passengers made him feel uncomfortable and embarrassed, and eventually people began to make fun of him. Until he took it off and he put it in the overhead bin. How different would his response be? If he knew that an hour into the flight, the aircraft would break apart and he would be flung out into the air at 30,000 feet. Do you think that the discomfort of having a parachute on his back while sitting down would have mattered to him? I mean, in this scenario, he still would have felt the pain. He still would have felt the lower back pain of having this bulky thing on his back. He still would have been uncomfortable what about when other people made fun of him? He, he would still go through that experience. What if people got so angry that they started to beat him up? What if they started to throw things at him? What if it got so bad that they came and tried to rip the parachute from his back? Do you think he'd give up? Or do you think that he would cinch that, those straps just a little bit tighter? Knowing that at any moment his need for the parachute will be very apparent. See, it's the knowledge that the parachute will be needed that allows the man to endure this affliction. The knowledge that he won't be dying today is the comfort that he clings to as he experiences trouble. On top of that, his future being secured, it sure puts the light and momentary affliction he feels now into perspective. He could even say that perspective brought him joy. The idol that my heart wants to bow down to is a trouble-free life. A desire for a life in which I am free from all affliction. Which is interesting because that's, that's a good desire But looking for it in this life is like looking for a sunrise at four in the morning. It's just not time yet. We're being made to wait. We're being made to hope for a future that has not yet come. So when you experience that longing for a life free from affliction and trial and sin and trouble, you know what you're looking for? Heaven, you're longing for home. And church, we're not home. Like the psalmist, we are in occupied enemy territory and we are on a brief stopover on our way home. And while we wait, while we are made to hope, we are given the word of God as a comfort Verse 51, The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. With This this life being a temporary layover in the journey home to heaven, notice how the psalmist spends his time while waiting. First, there is a plea for God to remember His own word. Then an acknowledgement of how God's word is the source of comfort when he is afflicted. And this renews his hope and courage to stand firm when the wicked ridicule and mock him. It makes him feverish with anger that he is surrounded by those who would forsake God's good laws. But he doesn't turn away from God's word. Instead, he doubles down and he turns them into songs. Verse 54, Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This idea of worship singing God's statutes so as to remember the name of God in the night and to aid the church into keeping His law, this concept has had an encounter with the culture. And it has emerged different. For many Christians, worship has become An experience or an industry rebranded as inspirational and positive. And these ideas have crept into the American modern worship service with admittedly impressive results. Large crowds gather weekly to experience an experience. For many, worship has been relegated to a feeling. And if you stop getting that feeling, it's time to move on somewhere that will provide it. See, biblically defined, that's still worship. It just doesn't have God as the object. I grew up sort of kind of in the era of the so-called worship wars. Everyone had their thing. Worship needs to be loud. It needs to be quiet. It needs more electric guitars. Only the devil listens to electric guitars. No drums. More drums. More No hymns. Only hymns. Fast songs. Slow songs. Happy songs. Sad songs. Songs that make me feel. Songs that make me think. Songs that are catchy. Acapella songs. Songs played to just an organ. See... So many Christians have set up for themselves stipulations and regulations for what will allow them to truly worship. I remember making a comment to a pastor when I was a teenager about how if worship was just more like the concert that I attended the night before, it wouldn't be so hard to worship. It'd be easier for me, personally, to worship God if Sunday morning worship sounded better sounded louder and was just more exciting and this pastor oh man kindly smiled and gave me the most devastating but such a great response when he said you're having trouble worshiping God because you're too busy worshiping your own preferences <laughs> I have to ask myself this question every single week. Have my own statutes become my songs? Have my own preferences taken over as the object of my worship? Or have I made the Lord's word my song? What we're doing when we gather as a church and sing on Sundays... It is counter to the worldly culture as well as a counter to the prevailing American modern church's culture. And I don't mean to suggest that, that we're the only church that's doing this. I'm not saying that other churches don't do this. But here at Center Church, we take God's word, His statutes, and we sing them together in the house of our sojourning. It might look and sound impressive. It might look and sound pathetic. It might not be your style. It might not be your preference. It really doesn't make a difference because of first importance is what is sung in church teaches the church. That's why I love VBS for my kids. We have we've far surpassed the half-life of the CDs that these songs are on. My kids want to hear VBS songs all of the time. They want to hear them. They, that's, their, that's their pick. We're going to have to explain to them at some point how CDs work and how if you, if you scratch them too much, they're gone. It's not going to work anymore. My kids want to hear these gospel truth-filled songs again and again. And I love it because they're being taught the truth of God's Word and it's being planted deep into their hearts and we need the same. If I could have the worship team join me, we're going to sing one more song. Bob Coughlin writes of the need for churches to sing biblically informed songs. He says this, we aren't just singing songs. This is teaching the church how to live well and how to die well how to experience success well, and how to experience grief well. God uses this to not only serve His church, but to also bring glory to His name. See, music and singing in the church, they are gifts from God to be used in the remembering the promises of God, especially in the times of affliction. Especially in the throes of apathy. Especially in the experience of the mundane. See, songs bury deep their truth in the heart of the singer. This is why we sing a lot of the same songs. We want so much for the truth of God's Word to be buried in our hearts and buried in our minds. Burned into our memory so that not if but when you experience the next wave of affliction you know with certainty where to turn it is always towards the shore the rock of christ and the confident expectation of god's word fulfilled amen let's stand together and let's sing